0: Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to turn there in your phones or in your Bibles in front of you, turn to Matthew 13. We'll be starting in Matthew 13, verse 24. If you're able to stand for God's Word, please do so. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, That a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the man of God, son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will be for the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated.
1: All right, well, good morning and happy Thanksgiving. Before we come to the message, just a quick plug for me too for Camp Quantos. If you are new to Central, maybe you're thinking, what is this Camp Quantos thing? Uh, this is a camp that Central Baptist, along with numerous other church churches, own. Uh, it's located just up near Duncan, right on the ocean, one of the most incredible properties you'll ever see. And kids go there, as Steve said, 4,400 kids uh, every single summer. They do incredible things uh, and, and just amazing stories come out of that. Uh, so I don't know about you, but I'm always looking for things where I think that is worth investing in. If I'm going to give my money and be generous towards something, I want it to be something that I say, that is well worth investing in. And I want to tell you as your pastor, this is a camp worth investing in. Uh, COVID has hit camp ministries very hard. And so we want to make sure that we come along as co-owners, uh, as partners with Camp Quanós, and to give. So as you're able, I understand during COVID things are different difficult for some people. Understand that, but if you are able to give, this is a worthy cause to give to. So again, as Steve said, you give towards the church, making sure you mark Camp Kornos, and then we will collect that over the next two weeks, and uh, we will give the the full donation to Camp Kornos. By the way, I think he said it, but just in case, it is open for the next three Sundays, the next two weeks, uh, so make sure you give during that time. All right, well, today we're continuing on, as you've heard uh, in our Ask Anything sermon series, and here is the next question that you asked, and then you voted in for your top ten that we're going to be preaching on this fall. Here's the question that you, you asked. If Christians are empowered by the Holy Spirit and more than conquerors, a quote from Romans 8, then why is the church so defeated? When I read this, I thought this is a very important question for us to be able to engage with. And I think it's so important because you can hear in the question itself a collective sense of discouragement. When we start using words like defeated, you didn't choose the word struggling or Having a general hard time. You chose the word defeated when you asked this question, and then collectively you voted on it. So I sense in this question a collective sense of discouragement. So, very important that we deal with this because I think we can all resonate with that. I mean, if the Holy Spirit's been poured out, then where are the results? If we are the Spirit empowered church, then why does it seem that the church is unable to stop our society from moving further and further away from Christian values and Christian ways of understanding the world? Why, Why is that the case if we're empowered by the Holy Spirit? If Christ is risen from the dead, why are tens of thousands of Canadians not turning to Christ every single Sunday as the gospel goes out? This is such an important question because I don't sense just a collective sense of discouragement under that question. I also see that discouragement is now shifting towards the next lower level, which is even more scary, and that is despair. When the people of God feel discouraged, that's one thing. But when we move from discouragement down into despair, now we are coming to the rock bottom and we cannot allow that to happen because despair is the point where you give up. Despair is the point where maybe you even say, maybe this whole Christianity thing is just not for me anyways. It doesn't seem to work in everyday life. Maybe the whole thing's not even true. Discouragement moves to despair, and despair is what causes us to ultimately give up, maybe on our own Christian walks or on Jesus in particular. And so what I want to do this morning, what I'm praying is going to happen, as we reflect on the scriptures, as we reflect upon the present time in which we live, I am praying that God would save us from despair, that he would save us from a defeatist mentality. Oh, there's all kinds of problems we got to deal with, and I want to engage with that this morning. But I am praying that this morning, through this message, by the end, and even in key parts in the middle, our hearts would, it is Thanksgiving Sunday, our hearts would be overflowing with thanksgiving, and that our discouragement would receive an injection of joy, an injection of faith, an injection of Thanksgiving as we begin to move forward in our society. So that's the question. If Christians are so empowered by the Holy Spirit, if we're more than conquerors, then why is the church so defeated? That's your question. You're asking me how to deal with it. Here's the first thing that I think we need to say this morning, and it is this Who says the church is being defeated? That's a big assumption in the question, but I want to push back right away and say, who says the church is being defeated? Now, I understand what's going on. I can easily guess what this question is getting at. Uh, I'm going to agree with it in part in a few moments, but I thought I want to begin right now at this point of discouragement and say to you, I think that this question reveals that, that, that we who are voting on this, you who want to hear this, our vision is too narrow. That's what's going on here. Our vision has become too narrow so that we become discouraged and maybe even fall into despair. And so what I want to do in this first little section is to simply broaden your vision to see a little bit of the bigger picture, and I think this will help to save you from discouragement and even from despair. How do you open your eyes and see more broadly? Well, we'll talk about Canada in a moment. But I think if this is your question, if this resonates with you this morning, you got to open your eyes to a larger global level and see what God is doing on a global level, not just a local level. Of course, we know the Western world has got its problems. We know that here in Canada, people are becoming less religious. More and more people are saying they have no religion. But here's the flip side of that. Do you know this? In the rest of the world, outside of Europe and North America people are becoming increasingly more religious. It's the opposite of what's going on here in the Western world. So let's open our eyes a little bit, and let me just give you even one basic statistic which should change your whole view on this and and broaden your view. And here it is. Here's the statistic. The center of Christianity has shifted from Europe and North America, the Western world, to the global south and the global east. Very important fact of what's going on in the world in the last 500 years, that the center of Christianity, which was once in Europe and in North America, has now shifted to the global south and the global east. Here's a couple stats to kind of show you what that looks like. First of all, 100 years ago, 80% of Christians lived in North America and Europe. Today, that number is only 40%. So where are the Christians now? Here's the next thing. Today, Latin America and Africa make up one billion Christians. (laughs) That's incredible. What a change. And part of us should be like rejoicing. We sent missionaries. And clearly, there's been an effect. Here's two other things to say. First of all, in Asia, Christianity is growing at twice the rate of the population. Twice the rate and particularly there's two countries that are outliers in all of this that is China and India China, as you probably know, is a nation where uh, there's a lot of persecution of Christians, so it is almost impossible to track how many Christians are actually in China. Estimates as low as 100 million, and then getting up to 250 million, 300 million, and then India as well, there's difficulties in census data and interpreting it, and so we're guesstimating right now there's about 71 million within India itself. That is absolutely incredible. Much more could be added to this, but what this should do is to encourage you. There's great reason to give thanksgiving to God. On this Thanksgiving Sunday, great reason. We should not be defeatist because the gospel is going around the globe and in many parts of the world. Don't be so narrow. In many parts of the world, Christianity is growing and blossoming and seeing great fruit. What reason to give thanks? Okay, what about Canada? In 1993, a very famous sociologist named Reginald Bibby uh, gave the statistics on how Canada is doing as far as the Christian faith goes. And he projected up to 2015-2020 that the church was going to steadily decline and even come to the point of death. Here's what's interesting. McLean's Magazine put out an article uh, on this entire thing, post-2015, and Reginald Bibby himself was quoted in there, and Bibby said, I got it wrong. Glad to hear that, baby. Uh, but he said he got it wrong because he neglected to focus or to even think about one which was very obvious, one very obvious factor that should have caused his projections to be different. And he says, I can't believe I missed this, but I, did, I failed to take into account immigration. Immigration. He says a major factor, and and all the sociologists talk about this, a major factor for the vibrancy of the Christian faith within the nation of Canada is new immigrants moving to Canada and either becoming Christians or they're bringing a vibrant Christian faith with them. This has been a major factor in the history of Christianity over the last 15 or 20 years. Here's another interesting thing. There's something that totally baffles sociologists. And what baffles them is that as our society is becoming increasingly more secular, you would think then that it would be the churches who totally accommodate to culture, who go along with culture, who are the churches that are growing. But what baffles sociologists is it is actually the conservative Christian churches, that is, those who hold to the historic Christian faith, things like we believe in miracles, believe in the authority of the Bible, uh, we believe Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, Christians who hold to the historic Christian faith, it is those churches that are growing and that are thriving in Canada right now, and it is more of the liberal mainline churches who've totally accommodated to culture that are dying by the hundreds and by the thousands closing their doors and selling their buildings. It baffles sociologists because they cannot understand why a conservative church would grow under such conditions. That also, in my view, as one of those who holds to the historic Christian faith, is great reason to give thanks. So yes, I'm going to say there are many things to be concerned about. We'll get to that. But everywhere, I think we need to say, there is great reason to give thanks on this Thanksgiving weekend. Just when I look out just here, just locally amongst our church and other churches within uh, the CRD, I see parents raising their kids to know Christ. Christ. I see Christians serving in professions like as teachers, as doctors, uh, as nurses, working with very difficult ethical situations and yet striving to be faithful to Christ. I see teenagers hungry to know God's word and who want to use their lives in service to him. I see men who are not giving in to to lust and pornography, though our culture is making it the easiest possible thing and it's perfectly normal. But men who are saying, no, I want to be faithful to Christ and to follow him despite how difficult that is I see women saying I want to stand up for the rights of unborn children even though in our society the unborn are not even considered to be human beings I see many young people saying I want to use my life for Christ it's amazing i see a generation saying we're not satisfied with where it's at we want to serve christ we'll give our lives for overseas missions i see values things like racial reconciliation young people love to talk about these subjects i see them caring about things like sex trafficking and poverty and using their lives in great causes is there not great reason for thanksgiving oh let's not be defeatist there's some issues we got to talk about. But let us never despair as if thing the church is so defeated in our generation. It simply is not the case. There's one little scripture verse that I think sums up this entire first point. A scripture verse that refers back to a scenario when the great prophet Elijah was in had a great encounter with God himself. And if you remember, Elijah considered that he was the only faithful one left in the story. I mean, God's people, you want to talk about defeated. They were defeated in so every outward sense. Imagine the church, imagine Central Baptists, and the Christians who attend here, all of a sudden were setting up statues of other gods and were bowing down and worshiping them. That was the case in his day where the church of his day, the nation of Israel, had abandoned the worship of God and they were worshiping a god called Baal. Total defeat is what it seemed to Elijah. And Elijah, as the prophet of God, fell into utter despair and was literally on the verge of giving up and saying to God, just take my life. I quit, it's over. But then God comes to him and says to him, what I'm trying to say to you, let's broaden our perspective, you're too narrow. And here is what God said to Elijah. He said, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, what you don't know is I'm still at work here. There are 7,000 faithful still in the nation of Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And I'm going to use this remnant and raise up a new cause. Open your eyes, Elijah. Broaden your vision. Don't be so narrow lest you become discouraged and fall into despair. So that is my first response then to your question is to simply throw it back and says, and say who says the church is being defeated? Open your eyes to what God is doing not only in Canada but around the world and on this Thanksgiving weekend let your heart just be poured out to God in thanksgiving for what he is doing. With that being said here's the second thing I think we need to say in response to our question. Who can deny that there are signs of defeat in the Western church? So I can't speak on the global church. I can speak more accurately on the Western church, so I will speak there because I think that is where your question is targeted anyways. I think that when Christians ask about the church being defeated, what they often mean is that the collective church within Canada or in the Western world has been unable to slow or even stop the progression of secular values within our society. That's the way I interpret what's going on underneath your question. And there is no question that this is indeed true. The morals of our society have changed. And what is so astounding is the velocity, the speed at which they have changed. Never before seen in the history of the world. they were not just talking about like a little shift in moral views and on morality. We are talking about nothing less than a complete moral revolution. As you well know. In just a few decades, we have witnessed a complete revolution in morality, a revolution in all things to do with sexuality, whether it's just uh, sex before marriage, whether it's living together before marriage, whether it's same-sex relationships, anything you can imagine has changed. We have witnessed a complete revolution in how people view abortion, the definition of marriage, divorce, and of course, now the most current one being the issue of gender. Gender. It has been nothing less than a moral revolution. There's a British thinker named uh, Theo Hobson, and he defines what must happen for such a moral revolution to take place. I thought this was spot on. You tell me what you think. He says there's three steps. First of all, for a moral revolution to take place, that which was condemned must be celebrated. So those things that society used to condemn as wrong not only must become right in the eyes of society, but must also be celebrated. That's the first thing that has to happen. Then there's a second thing. That which was celebrated must be condemned. So those old values and morals that used to stand in society now must be viewed not only as wrong, they must be condemned out of society. That's the second thing that must happen for a moral revolution to take place. But then he says there is a last and very important final step, and here it is. Those who will not celebrate must be condemned. Those who will not celebrate must be condemned. So that which was once condemned has to become celebrated. That which was celebrated must be condemned. And those who will not celebrate must fall under the condemnation of society. When those three things happen, then you have a moral revolution. And who can deny that such a thing has happened in our society over the last half century or so? And when I read that, or I heard that, I thought that exactly defines what the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 talks about how as a society, human beings know there's a creator, but we fail to give him our worship and thanks. We turn away from him and we begin to worship ourselves and all the things in creation. For this, the wrath of God comes upon us. But it's not what you might think. When you think of the wrath of God, people often think, oh, it's lightning bolts and God's striking people down, but not in Romans 1. In Romans 1, when the wrath of God comes upon a society, it is God simply removing his hands and allowing society to do whatever it wants. And when the human sinful heart can do whatever it wants, we end up destroying ourselves from within. And so society begins to decay from within. And so Romans 1 describes how, what this looks like. Paul says that men and women begin to pursue sexual relationships with their own sex. Society becomes, quote, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, unless you think that Paul's somehow picking on same-sex relationships. He's not. He gives a whole list of other things that happen within such a society. See if this sounds a little familiar. A society where there is envy. (laughs) Almost the entire advertising world. We want what we don't have boasting, strife, there's conflict everywhere, gossip, lying, Hmm. a generation right now where we do not even hardly know what is true anymore because we know everything has been slanted. It is so hard to know what the truth is anymore. Paul says people are heartless, they become ruthless, and they even commit murder. He defines in another letter how people are lovers of themselves. And then Paul, in these words like we just read, concludes Romans 1 saying, you know the moral revolution is complete. You know a society is under the wrath of God when, quote, he says, the society, the people, not only do them all these unrighteous acts, but they give approval to those Who practice them. So, when a Christian looks at the moral revolution that has occurred in our society, I can see why you asked the question. Because we ask Have we not been defeated because the moral revolution has won? Let's be honest. Christians did not win the day on all these things. The moral revolution has happened, so why has the church been unable to stop or even slow this revolution? So many things could be said. But surely one reason anyways is that many Christians, pastors, churches, and even entire generations, uh, denominations, sorry, have literally just caved in and compromised with the culture around them. How else can you explain why so many Christian books and pastors and denominations have just literally abandoned all that Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years? How do you know these ones? Well, it's the books, it's the pastors, it's the blogs, it's the websites, it's the whole denominations that teach things against what Christians have always believed. They'll teach that there is no judgment, that there is no hell, that Jesus did not necessarily rise bodily from the dead, that miracles don't happen, come on now, that the Bible is filled with all kinds of errors and is not authoritative. It's just another good, sacred book in the history of the world, that God approves of same-sex marriage and that everyone will be saved in the end. These are pastors, these are denominations, these are Christians who have literally just caved in. They have been defeated. And I wonder about the effect of that on our larger society for the salt has lost its saltiness. It's one reason anyways. But lest we become self-righteous, we also need to examine ourselves. Yes, of course, as I said already, there are many signs of faithfulness. But I do not think any of us would say that we as Christians are the high watermark of Christian faithfulness, of prayer, of obedience, of utter devotion to the mission and the cause of Christ. I don't think any of us would say as a generation that we are the high watermark in history. And that should just cause us to right away humble ourselves to kneel before God, and to say, forgive us where we have caved into culture. Forgive us and help us to live for you, to be faithful in the generation in which we live. So I'm sure there are many reasons we could point to for why the church... Uh, seemingly had so many problems in it. Why society has gone this way? I do not know the full connection between why society goes one way and how much the church is responsible. I'm not sure we're entirely responsible. We live under the powers of this age. I'm not sure we should say that we're totally at fault. But at least there's two things to get you thinking right away on why the church is so defeated. The first thing is to simply say, who says the church is defeated? There's lots of great stuff going on. But then secondly, yes... There are signs of defeat within the Western world, within the Western church. Now, I say that because I want to set up everything for this third question. This is the teaching, the Bible teaching part, which I think is going to become very important. In the third place, I want to ask this question. What expectations should we have? What expectations should we have? Because, of course, as you know, expectations are everything in life. Should we expect... That if Christians had just been more faithful in the past 50 years, that our society would look totally different? Is that what we should expect? Is that a legitimate expectation? On a personal level, should you expect that as a Christian, you should, you know, become a Christian, and then uh, you should experience total victory over your sin in, in, in this life, and you should basically walk in victory? Should you have that expectation? Or should we expect that Christians and churches will always struggle, that we're often seemingly defeated, but one day Christ will return and bring the victory? You see, expectations are everything. What are your expectations for your own Christian life? What are your expectations for the church and society? And if we do our job, what society would look like? Whatever those expectations are, we've got to make sure that they are biblical, lest we view the whole thing wrongly. So what expectations should we have? Christians have often taken really two views on this, and one of my personal favorite preachers, you might not know him, a great Scottish man named James Stewart, he died in 1990, Uh, he defines this in two ways, two views that Christians have often taken on our expectations. The first view says that we should have victory only beyond history that is you should not expect to see the church dominating and being victorious in this world no we're always going to struggle but one day Jesus will return and there will be utter victory beyond history that's the first view that Christians have taken when they think about expectations the second view stewart puts like this victory within history And I'll explain what that means in just a moment. So think this through with me, because this is going to determine how you view all of the church within society. This is going to help you whether you're going to feel discouraged, whether you might fall into despair. you got to get your expectations right, just like in so many areas in life. So let's think through the first view. And the first view would say there is victory only beyond history. So you should not expect to see great victory for the church within history. Many Bible passages will seemingly back this up. For instance, Jesus declared these words in Matthew chapter 24. He said, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus promised that the gospel is going to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, but notice he did not promise that all the nations would respond and be saved. He just simply said it would be proclaimed. Now, seemingly, You think many will, but he hasn't promised that there is going to be a great victory within this world. So that is pointed out. You had read for you earlier on in the service, the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. And the tares are a type of weed that look just like wheat, and they grow up with the wheat. And they entangle their roots with the wheat so that if you're a farmer, you cannot hardly tell from a distance what is wheat and what is weeds. And the only way you can tell is when you finally harvest them, and then you can separate the two. And in that parable, Jesus is telling us that there are certain people who are his people, the wheat, and there are those who are not, the weeds. And Jesus does not say that the wheat will eventually take over so much that there'll be no more weeds in the field of this world. That's not what he's saying. He says, until the very end of the age, there will always be wheat, And there will always be weeds. In other words, there'll be Christians and non-Christians that they will always grow together until the end of the age. Then there are verses, of course, where Jesus says, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. You want to follow Jesus? You should expect to receive the same kind of treatment that Jesus received. And if you don't, you're getting a much better deal, but this should be an expectation Christians will, Jesus says, be hated. They will be persecuted. They will even be killed. It is no sign of defeat when Christians are martyred or persecuted or scorned. Other passages like Galatians 5 say it is normal for a Christian to struggle with desires within themselves, always wrestling, always warring. We live in a fallen world. We are fallen. It's normal to experience that. And then finally there is all the Bible's teaching on the devil on evil spiritual powers on and on one called the antichrist. All of these are said to be waging war against Jesus' people, against the church, and holding other people captive in their sins. So all these things together then create this expectation in this first view that you should expect in this world to have a lot of struggle, and it's going to be difficult. You should not expect some giant victories where everyone in society has become a Christian or something like that. No, you should expect it to be a little bit more like I I was thinking about this In Greek mythology, to expect it to be like the hydra. You know what the hydra is in Greek mythology? It's that multi-headed dragon, and if you chop off one head, what happens? Two heads grow back. And don't we often feel like that in our societies? We're trying to do good, trying to share the message of the gospel, trying to work for good in our society. You're dealing with one thing, and it's just like a whole bunch of others crop up. A whole bunch of other problems in society crop up. More and more, it just feels like it's a hydra. And these verses are saying to us, that's normal. For this world is under the prince of the power of the air. There are evil spiritual powers. Our own flesh is against us. This is normal, is what the first view is saying to us. This first view, I think, is very helpful. Because it's very realistic. It saves us from despair because it kind of, in a sense, lowers your expectations to say, you should not expect some sort of Christian utopia in this world. You should expect that often you'll be like Daniel. Daniel, who lived in the Babylonian pagan empire, he was faithful, but everything around him was totally against the values and the beliefs that he held. Or like the early church under the great Roman empire, all the values of that empire, totally anti-Christian, and yet the early church was faithful and grew in the midst of such a thing. So this is the first view. It saves you from despair, but what it says is one day. Jesus is going to return, and there will be absolute victory. So the great hope of Christianity is looking forward. We are faithful now, but we look forward to the day when Christ will return, and he'll make all things right and bring utter victory to this world. So that's the first view, that you should expect to only have victory beyond history. Now, the second view is victory, well, I don't have it anymore, but it's victory in history. So not only beyond, we should expect, the second view says, no, the Bible also says, this, the people of this view say, you should expect victory in history. And so this view emphasizes the power of the Holy Spirit. It points out that wherever the gospel goes, it changes the world, and that is very, very true. We also had read for us earlier the parable of the mustard seed, a small seed in the garden which then grows and becomes one of the largest plants just like the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth and as we saw to the global south, to the global east and it grows. Or The apostle Paul writes this, he says, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and it's increasing. That's victory within history, not just wait it out and wait for Jesus to return. No, the gospel is going forward and we're seeing victory in history. Even Israel's historic rejection of Jesus as the Messiah is not final. Once the mission to the Gentiles is complete Romans 11:26 says these words says all Israel will be saved and I understand that we won't get into this now but I understand that to be God has many within Israel whom he has chosen and a day is going to become come when we are going to see many Jewish people accept Jesus as the true Messiah as their Messiah so this view then emphasizes that the Spirit of God has been poured out, that Christ is with us on the mission, and we should expect to see great victories within history, say great results. So one version of this called post-millennialism, there's a big word, drop that one at a party, Postmillennialism uh, says that you should expect that at the end of, end of the age, God is going to pour out His Spirit so much that nations all over may not be totally Christian, but nations will become Christian and the whole world will bow at the feet of Jesus so this view then is very optimistic about the future that declares that even though it may be dark right now in certain parts of the world God's power is such that he will bring victory within history and then of course it says he will also bring victory beyond history so that was a lot of teaching you still with me right now here's my question for you which one do you think is true you got to get your expectations right. Which one do you think is true? My view, yes. <laughs> I, personally, just all the study I've done of the scriptures, I think both answers are right. I'm not sure we have to pit one against the other. So as I read the Bible, I try to summarize my thoughts like this. We should expect struggle and apparent defeat until the victorious return of Christ at the end of history, but we should also expect to see great victories for Christ within history. It's the only way I can make sense of all these different verses, because they they're all they saying sometimes seemingly different things, that we should expect struggle and apparent defeat. That should be normal. You should not fall into despair when you find yourself in a great battle or living during a very dark age. You should then look forward to the great second coming of Christ, but you should also expect to see great victories within history itself. So the first view, I think, is very helpful, like I said, because it saves us from despair. Following Jesus can be very difficult, especially if you're in a country where it's illegal to be a Christian. Just your own heart, as we said, Galatians 5 tells you, you have a war going on within you. It's hard to follow Christ and be obedient to him. You should expect to see people turning away from Christ and heaping scorn upon those who follow him. So truly, it is accurate to say, our great hope is in the second coming of Christ, when he will bring his people into complete victory. That's why I say, that just because there's been a great moral revolution in our society, it does not necessarily follow that it's somehow the church's fault. I don't like it when I hear Christians saying, you know, if the church had just done this and this and this, this would never would have happened. I'm not sure that's accurate. Can you really say that? I don't know where the lines are between the two. And sure, we should critique ourselves and what we can do better at, but I'm not sure there's a one-to-one complete correlation there. Yet I also want to say we need to hear well, we need to hear this first one because it saves us from despair. But right now, in our point as churches in society, right now, as I'm going to particularly speak to those who you might say, I'm a conservative Christian or a traditional Christian, whatever language you want to use, I think we actually need to hear the second view more loudly. Here's why I say that. It is my observation that amongst Evangelical Christians, those who be more on kind of the conservative end who hold to all the historic Christian faith, it is my observation that we are beginning to give in to a defeatist mentality. What I mean by that is I'm hearing Christians all the time lamenting what used to be and what is no more, lamenting the moral revolution that has happened within our society. And I'm not saying that's bad, but what I constantly hear is Christians saying, everything has collapsed, we've lost the moral revolution, the church is dying, and there's a, there's this mentality of a defeatist going on right there. And so then what Christians do is they retreat behind their church walls and we do Bible studies on the second coming and the signs of the times to When is Jesus finally going to return and end it all? I feel like I'm seeing this everywhere, and it's greatly disturbing to me. It's greatly disturbing to me because I think, what's happened to us? Have we forgotten that Christ has risen from the dead? Have we forgotten that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us? Have we forgotten Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out? Do we not think that the same Spirit who saved 3,000 people through one sermon on the day of Pentecost, and 2,000 people a few days later, could do the same thing in our day and our time? Where is our faith? Have we fallen into unbelief? Do we honestly think that the powers of evil or the devil himself are any match for the risen and reigning king of the universe? Where's our theology? Christ is not just risen, he is reigning. He's Lord of heaven and earth, and he will accomplish his purposes. Oh, where is our faith? And yet I resonate. When I look on I say, okay, Lord, I believe that. But then why do we see so little results? <laughs> well, yeah, we see a person here, a person there. Sometimes we'll have a baptism service with five people, maybe ten people, and we think that's, that's great, and of course we want to celebrate that, but... God, I've never seen 3,000 people become Christians in one sermon. Never seen such a thing. Don't even know if I've heard of such a thing in Canada, the U.S. So I agree, but listen, faith means never giving up to despair no matter how dark things get. That's what it means to live the life of faith like Daniel in Babylon. If you live in those days of which surely, those are the kind of days we are living in, faith means never giving in to a defeatist mentality. We need to remember that all through history, God has often worked when things are most dark. Dark. So to encourage us to let me try to stoke the fires of our faith, so we don't give into the defeatist mentality. Let's recount some of the ways that God has worked. You'll see a pattern here. Let me try to encourage you with this: that so often it's when things are darkest that that's when God moves in power. Think of Israel enslaved in Egypt for four hundred years, crying out to God. It seems like God's never going to answer us. Maybe he doesn't even exist. And then, bam, God raises up a man named Moses. And with a very short period of time, Israel is liberated out of their condition of slavery. Everything just changed. You want to talk about a revolution? It was a revolution. God promised Adam and Eve he would send a Messiah to save us, to crush the head of the serpent, all the evil, make everything right again. Thousands of years pass. Where is this Messiah? Before the time of Christ, 400 years of what we call the 400 years of silence, God is not speaking to his people. Has God abandoned us? Are we defeated? Does God even exist? Or maybe we're wrong about this whole thing. No, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman. We're about to talk about that for an entire month in December. The disciples praying in the upper room. Jesus is gone. What are we going to do in this world? Suddenly the Spirit comes on them in power. Suddenly Pentecost happens. Suddenly 3,000 people are saved. Then 2,000 people. Then the church is going out into the ends of the earth. Fast forward, we could go through all history for a long time. Think of the 1400s and the 1500s. If you know a little bit of history, the church has become very corrupt at this time, extremely corrupt. God raises up one man and a man named Martin Luther who had his faults, but God used that man to literally change the entire face of the church in one generation along with a few others. In one generation, everything changed. Let me continue to stoke these fires of faith. A few weeks ago, I told you the story of Korea. Let me tell you some other stories. Let me tell you about the United States, uh, England, and Wales, three different nations in the beginning of the 17th or 18th century, the early 1700s, listen to what one man named J.C. Ryle writes about the state of religion in England and by implication, the United States as well. Here's what he says. The state of this country, England in particular, in a religious and moral point of view was so painfully unsatisfactory that it is difficult to convey any adequate idea of it. England seemed barren of all that is really good. How such a state of things can have arisen in a land of free Bibles is almost beyond comprehension. Christianity seemed to lie as one dead. There was darkness in high places and darkness in low places. Darkness in the court, the camp, the parliament, and the bar. Darkness in the country and darkness in the town. And darkness among the rich and darkness among the poor. The archbishop of the Church of England in those days summed up everything. Listen to how he sums up his generation. He says, an open and professed disregard for religion is the distinguishing character of the age. Starting to sound a little familiar? An open and professed disregard for religion is the distinguishing character of the age. But then God raised up some incredible people if you don't know these names, you ought to become educated on them. I can recommend many books for you to read. Names like John Wesley, Charles Wesley, <coughs> George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. These men were preaching sermons, and some sermons they would preach on multiple occasions. And at the beginning, it seemed like there was no power. They'd go in, they'd preach somewhere. Nothing seemingly great ever happened. And then suddenly in the 1740s, something happened and the Spirit of God was poured out in great power for over a decade, and sermons that were once preached with seemingly little power, suddenly now were just being gobbled up by the masses and having tremendous effect upon them. George Whitfield, in particular, would go out and he'd preach in fields. Remember what the archbishop said? He would go preach in fields, and suddenly thousands of people would gather in a field to listen to this man preach. And this is what was written of those days. Whitfield says, The gospel so proclaimed was listened to and greedily received by hundreds who never dream of going to a place of worship. Thousands came to Christ. Complete shift from the way that it was before. Over in the United States, Jonathan Edwards reported the same thing. He wrote this, Everywhere the reign of formality seemed broken, and tears streamed down the faces of thousands under the preaching of the gospel the reign of formality, (laughs) formal religion. It was broken, and real spiritual life came into the churches. Then listen to this quote. By May of 1740, it was reported that there was never such a general awakening and concern of the things of God known in America before. Here's the big line. The gospel in this day may be likened to a fire set to well-dried fuel, like paper, dry kindling, dry wood, it no sooner touches, but a flame arises. What a shift from just what Archbishop, the Archbishop said, which basically what he was saying was the spirit of the age try, in his day was like trying to light a fire with green wood in the middle of a downpour in Victoria in late October. And all of a sudden now it's a completely different deal. What a difference. That's England. That's the United States in the 1740s. Fast forward now to the year 1904, 1905, and the nation of Wales. Listen to this description. The nation had drifted far from God. The spiritual conditions were low indeed. Church attendance was poor, and sin abounded on every side. Suddenly, like an unexpected tornado, the Spirit of God swept over the land. The churches were crowded so that multitudes were unable to get in. Meetings lasted from 10 in the morning until 12 at night. Wow. Wow. And I think to myself, Canada has never experienced a nationwide revival like that. May God be pleased to do it in our day. May God be pleased to do it in our time. To take that open and professed disregard for religion, which is clearly one of the distinguishing characters of our age, and to take that green fuel and pouring rain and to dry it out, that the gospel, wherever it goes, it would touch and receive a flame. There would be baptism services with hundreds or thousands where we don't even know what to do as staff because we can't handle doing three services a day here at the church. We don't know how to handle that kind of thing. we got to call in reinforcements because we don't know how to preach that many times or to organize such a thing. May God be pleased to do something like that in Canada in our day and in our time. And yet we still say things have become so dark here. There's a famous mountain climber named Hilary Bellick and he was once climbing the Pyrenees Mountains in Spain with a group of friends and they started early before the sun rose. And they're up on the mountain and suddenly a giant storm came upon them and they're gathered together and the other climbers said, this feels like the end of the world. They thought they were going to die. But Hilary Bellick, who had climbed these mountains many times in the Pyrenees, He said, not so. He said, this is how dawn comes in the Pyrenees. This is how dawn comes in the Pyrenees. Friends, there's many reasons to think that the church is being defeated. There's many reasons to say, yes, there's darkness and maybe it's gonna get even darker, we have no idea. But could it be that this is how dawn comes to the nation of Canada? Could it be that the moral revolution will run its course, there'll be so much broken lives in the wake of it that maybe one day we will suddenly say, we might need to look to God as a nation? Right now, it sure does not seem like that is the case. But where is our faith? Who knows what God wants to do? Who knows Jesus' plan for our nation? Perhaps all of this darkness right now is just the way that dawn is going to come to our nation. I don't know, but here's what I do know. What I want to see among Central Baptists and amongst other conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, what I want to see is less complaining about the darkness and more prayer more personal faithfulness, and more devotion to the cause of Christ. Oh sure, we lament the state of our nation, no question about it. But let, it never, let us never allow our discouragement to turn into despair or to paralyze us from doing the work that he has called us to do. Because guess what? Last time I checked... The Bible still says Jesus is sitting on his throne. Last I checked, the lamb in Revelation chapter five, still was worthy to open the scroll. The significance of that is the scroll of history to cause history to come to pass, all of God's purposes to come to pass in history. Last I checked, the lamb is still on the throne. He's still worthy to open the scroll. He is still sovereign over history. And so what we want to do is move forward with the call that he's given us to make disciples, remembering that it is this sovereign one who says to us, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And even if things get very difficult, we do not allow the darkness. We do not allow it to overcome our hearts. For the one whom we believe in said, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Jesus said, take heart for he has overcome the world. So friends, we follow the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who will cause all of his purposes to come to pass. And is he who said, I will, not I might, not I'll do my best, I will build my church. And even the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Let's pray. I want to give you a personal moment to just pray to God. Maybe you need to confess your lack of faith. I'm sorry, God, for my lack of faith. Sorry for not following you. Take a moment and just confess that. And then in a few moments, we'll lead in a time of prayer for ourselves, for our church and the nation. Just take a personal moment of prayer right now. Father, forgive us where we have not been faithful. We are to be salt. We do not want to lose our saltiness. Salt is to preserve. In ancient times, to preserve meat, and we are to be a preserving effect on our society. And so, Lord, we want to be what you have called us to be. Forgive us where we have compromised. Forgive us where we have not been obedient in following you. Have mercy on us, O God. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And Father, we just right now rededicate ourselves to your service, to loving you, to serving you. Take a moment now and pray for Central Baptist. pray for the other churches in our capital regional district, and pray for our nation that we would see God move in great power amongst us, that we would move from those early days of the Great Awakening when there was an open and professed disregard for religion to a day when thousands are coming to Christ. Spend just a moment in prayer asking that God would be pleased to do that in our day and in our time. So, Father, we pray you would do that in our day and in our time. We've heard stories of what you have done. And so we pray with Habakkuk, O Lord, we've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day and in our time. Make them known. Be pleased to do this, O Lord. Do not pass us by, but be pleased, O Lord, to awaken your churches to awaken us as your people and to do a great thing in our nation. Father, we would even pray for you to do that right now during COVID. What a a moment to magnify your great power for none of us could boast that it was of our great abilities for we have been really stripped bare. We are weak. So Lord, even now, it'd be a great moment for you to do this for we would all say that this is of you. You would get the glory So be pleased, O God, to bring revival in our country. Do it in our own hearts first. Do it in our families. Do it in our churches. Have mercy on us, O God, and awaken us. Jesus, we want to trust you no matter what the state of our world is. We turn our hearts again to you, trusting in you who are risen, who are reigning. You who will one day come again. And we say... That you are worthy to receive all honor and praise and glory, for you are the Lamb who is slain. So we proclaim you are worthy this morning, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen.